Good evening, Revolution. How's everybody doing tonight? You must be excited because you know Matt's not preaching, right? <laughs> um, my name is Justin Clark. I'm part of the leadership team here. Thank you for being with us on this Easter Sunday. Um, I'm super excited to let you guys know that um, Pastor Dave is going to be preaching this week and next week. So three of you are also excited. That's great. Um, I'm kind of bittersweet, and, and I think everybody probably knows this by now, but um, Pastor Dave and his wife and their kids are going to be moving to Michigan um, this month to take an associate pastor's job at a church in Detroit. So he said he's tired of Portsmouth Homes to a better place, so he's going to Detroit. <laughs> he didn't say that. Um, they are very sad, and, and they, um, he, I'm sure, will explain um, how wonderful this opportunity is um, for him and his family to you guys, um, we're excited to give him a couple weeks to preach here um, so we can just enjoy his company and his teaching. And um, please be committed to praying for Dave and Krista, for me and Zane, as they move to a new church, to a new town. Um, I know this is a step of faith on their end for, um, in their relationship with the Lord, and we fully support them. Um, are very sad to see them go, but excited for this opportunity for them. So um, a couple of quick announcements. Free market, we are targeting the month of May. Please go ahead and start bringing your stuff in if you um, have already started to sort through that, and we will be passing along more details. We're currently working to partner with other churches here in Portsmouth to expand um, the scope of what we're able to do for free market. So um, we're not going to ask you guys to do anything different right now than we've ever done in the past. Continue to go through your stuff at home, bring those things in, things that are gently used or new um, or things that you just really don't have a need for um, anymore um, or things that maybe you have a need for, but you just decided, you know what, I'm living in excess and this is my way of kind of pulling that out of my life and giving that to somebody who really does need it. So, um, but like I said last week, and we'll continue to say, we don't want your junk. So if what you bring is not good enough for you, it's not good enough to give to somebody else in the name of the Lord. So um, we appreciate you guys continue to support that ministry, that opportunity to help folks here. So I'm going to pray. Pastor Dave's going to come up here and teach. And then we have a special baptism for you guys tonight as well. So we're excited about that. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that today, culturally, we celebrate this we celebrate Easter, and we don't need today to remind us that you're alive and you've risen, but Lord, what a glorious reminder today is that, that the death that has such a stranglehold on this world, the darkness that seems to control so much of what goes on, has no power over you. And today is a reminder that you defeated that, Lord, and we just thank you from the bottom of our hearts for the opportunity to come together and gather and just celebrate that. I pray that today is just, as we come to you in song later tonight, I pray that just the songs that have been chosen in a way have been chosen with the intention to focus us on your victory, to celebrate that victory. Lord, I pray that tonight we can all walk out of here knowing that we have victory in your name. It's in that name we pray. Amen. How are we doing, Revolution? <laughs> well, um, I am happy to have the opportunity to speak to you tonight. Seems like it's probably been a little while since I've uh, had the pleasure of being up here, um, so I'm thankful for that. It is uh, Easter Sunday, so happy Easter, or uh, happy Resurrection Day if you're super uptight about the word Easter, um, so you know whatever floats your boat there, but uh, happy today. Um, in a rather odd turn of events, we won't be looking at a resurrection passage this Sunday. Um, I know that that seems unnatural on Easter. We won't even be looking at a, a crucifixion passage uh, on Easter. Um, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 11. It's where we're at in the progression of the book of Mark. If you're visiting with us, we've been working our way through the whole book of Mark. 
Um, Matt contacted me this week and said, we're at Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. And uh, it's this passage that sometimes is known as the triumphal entry passage. It's this passage that depicts Jesus coming into Jerusalem. It's, it's uh, often associated with the week before, weekend before Easter. So last weekend, what's sometimes called Palm Sunday. Um, and, and it has this title, the triumphal entry associated with it. Um, the truth is, I, I think that that is a misnomer. I think that's mislabeled. Um, I don't think that these 11 verses um, have really anything to do with triumph of Jesus. Um, at least not in the way that we always think they do. Um, so we do talk about this passage as though it's this great triumphant event for Jesus. The, the crowds are just shouting you know, praises to this, this man who they recognize as, as king or Messiah or God or something like that. But I don't think that at all is what Mark is communicating. I think that for a long time we've misunderstood this passage. In fact, really the whole Easter celebration um, is about the opposite of, uh, of triumph the way we think about it. Right? We, we think about um, triumph in terms of conquering and conquest and victory. Um, we, we think of it in terms of champions, in terms of winners and, and losers. But Easter actually turns the entire concept of victory on its head. Right? Easter is, uh, is, is victory backwards. Right? Uh, we see this most clearly at the cross. Right? What happens at the cross? The Son of God dies. It's victory. It is victory, but it's victory in an unusual way. It's victory in the opposite way that we think it should happen. God accomplishes conquering sin and Satan and death and hell for His people by being murdered. It's victory in a rather backwards fashion. Think uh, a um, Mark, I think Mark does this well, where he sort of leaves us in these dramatic, surprising sorts of uh, turns. And, and, and he's continually painting for us Jesus as king, but Jesus as king of a different kind of kingdom. And I think in a lot of ways, this is something that's really hard for us to grasp, something that's really hard for us to understand. It was hard for the disciples to understand. We could think back to Mark chapter 8, verses 30 and 31. We've got this passage where um, Jesus asks the disciples, he's walking along the road with them, he asks the disciples, who do people say I am? And the disciples kind of tell Jesus, well, there's these theories. Some people say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Other people say you're the prophet, Old Testament prophet Elijah, re, uh, reborn. You, some people say you're uh, another prophet from the Old Testament. And then Jesus sort of asks the pointed question, who do you think I am? Which, of course, is the question we all have to wrestle with. Who do we think Jesus really is? And Peter, speaking on behalf of, of all the disciples, says, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the anointed, chosen servant of God. You're the one who's going to rescue and set everything right. And then Jesus begins to tell the disciples about how he's going to die. He's foretelling his coming death. And Peter kind of freaks out. Peter freaks out so much that Mark tells us he pulls Jesus aside and rebukes Jesus. That's pretty gutsy, Peter. Pretty gutsy. Rebuke Jesus. And, and we've got this, this scene set up 
Um, and Jesus kind of pushes back on Peter a little bit and, and, and basically says, Peter, you, do, you think you know what it means to call me Messiah, but you really don't. See, in a lot of ways, the, the, the Jews in Peter's day, the, the disciples themselves, often thought of Jesus as a political figure. They thought of the Messiah as this great political hero who was going to come into Jerusalem and kick out the Romans and set up a nice new Jewish kingdom for the people of Israel. And that's what Peter's thinking. And Peter's thinking, you know, how can you possibly set up this new kingdom if you're going to, to die? Jesus, stop saying you're going to die. That's just not going to work for our little plan. The disciples didn't get it. Or, or we could look over in, in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 and following, where Jesus again foretells his death. He is going to die. And James and John come to Jesus after he's just said that he's going to be mocked and spit on and beaten and murdered. James and John come to Jesus right on the heels of that statement and they say, cool, Jesus, uh, we have this request. We would like, when you set up your whole new awesome kingdom, we would like some seats of authority in that new kingdom. We'd like to be your right-hand guy and your left-hand guy um, and have some, some power. In fact, the other gospel writers tell us um, that James and John didn't ask. They had their mommy ask Jesus on, on their behalf. So they're really classy dudes, right? Um, so, so we've got this scenario now where the disciples are completely missing what Jesus is saying. Over and over and over again, they don't see who Jesus really is. The idea that Jesus has a victory different from the way we think about victory is just absurd to them. The idea that Jesus could be a hero while being murdered is beyond reason to them. The disciples just didn't get it. The, the Jewish religious leaders didn't get it. The Romans didn't get it. The truth is, in a lot of ways, we don't get it either. See, I think part of the reason that we interpret this passage as a, a, a triumphant entry, a triumphal entry, this sort of majestic picture of Jesus marching into the city, is because that's the kind of Jesus we like. That's the kind of Jesus we want. We read the Bible often through this American right-to-power kind of mindset. But Jesus is the king of a different kind of kingdom. Jesus has a different kind of victory. Let's look at the text. Mark chapter 11, if you've got the blue Bible, it's going to be page 607. And if you don't have a Bible, um, happy Easter, this one is yours, take it, take it with you. Starting in verse 1 of Mark chapter 11, it says, As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there, and no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it, and we'll return it soon. That's a, a rather funny sort of picture to me. Jesus is like, go steal somebody's donkey, and if they say anything, just say, the Lord's, the Lord's claiming it. It's weird. Uh, the two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying the colt? Which seems like a natural thing if somebody's stealing your donkey. They said, what Jesus had, they said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, 
And the people around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David! Praise God in highest heaven! So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the twelve disciples. All right, what's going on here? We've got this, this scene. Uh, Jesus and the disciples are going up to Jerusalem. It's the season of a great religious festival. They're going up to go to the temple because they're good Jews, and that's, that's what good Jews did at this time of the year. And it's important to note that this whole scene starts at this place called the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives was, in the Old Testament, a, a really prominent place. It had a lot of association with the worship of God. So in like 2 Samuel 15, we record that this was a place, it's recorded that there was, uh, this was a place where God was worshipped. It's also a place associated with the coming of the Messiah. So in places like Ezekiel and Zechariah, we've got this idea of the Lord departing from Jerusalem and settling His presence on the Mount of Olives. Or this idea that, that on the Mount of Olives would be the future site of, of all final judgment. So there are these associations with the Mount of Olives um, in, in the Old Testament uh, with the person of the Messiah. And that's important. Mark almost never talks about places. and in, in his whole gospel, he rarely identifies a location. But here, he's telling us specifically this happened at the Mount of Olives because he wants to draw the clear connection for us between Jesus and the coming Messiah. He is saying Jesus is the promised servant of God who is going to fix all these things, who's going to make things right. Of course, again, many Jews have this thought that the Messiah was supposed to be a political figure, that for them, the coming of the Messiah meant that he was going to push out Rome, he's going to establish this new, great, fantastic kingdom. So by drawing these sorts of parallels, Mark is kind of setting us up for a surprise. He's saying, Jesus is the Messiah, but he's not the Messiah that you think. See, this is a reality that a lot of us have to wrestle with. Jesus is King. Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior, but maybe not the way that we always think. So we have this tendency sometimes of, of trying to reshape Jesus. There's a, there's a quote from a, a historian who says that Jesus is as American as apple pie. We've adopted Jesus in American culture. We like Jesus. Jesus is a good person, a good figure, but he's not always the Jesus of the Bible. We think of Jesus like Plato. You, you mold him and shape him to fit your personality. This is the Jesus I like. That's the Jesus that somebody else likes. And this is the Jesus for me. But, but the reality is, Mark is saying here, there is a real surprise for all of us. Jesus doesn't conform to our ideals. God has set who this person is. We are to understand him that way. You can't just make God into who you want him to be. You can't make Jesus who you want him to be. He is king, but he sets out what his kingship will look like. He's a different kind of king for a different kind of kingdom. The parallels continue in this passage. Mark draws on this idea of the, the donkey, the colt. This idea that the, the Messiah goes into town and, and gets this, this burden, this beast of burden, and nobody's ever ridden on it, and it's going to be this, this donkey that he rides into town on. And it, it may seem, you know, if you're just reading this passage, it may seem a bit like a kind of a pointless errand. Jesus has been walking everywhere. Why all of a sudden does he need a ride? 
right? What's the, what's the point here? Right? It, it can feel maybe like, maybe, maybe Jesus just got tired of the disciples, right? I mean, we see through Mark, they're constantly bickering, they're constantly whining and complaining, they constantly misunderstand Jesus. Maybe he's just tired of talking to him for a few minutes. Guys, uh, go into town and find a donkey, one that's never been ridden, right? Just go, just go, find the donkey, find the donkey, just get out of my hair for a few minutes, right? Maybe it's busy work, it's something to occupy them, right? Just something to keep them from talking to him for a few minutes. My dad used to do that. I remember, uh, I remember I had a really long um, drive with my dad. I don't remember what we were doing. We were going somewhere in South Carolina, I think. And he did that thing that all parents do at some point. Let's play that, see who can be quiet the longest game, right? I always lost at that game. I know it's a, it's a shocker. I always lost at that game. Um, but maybe that's what Jesus is thinking. He's just thinking, I've got to get these guys out of my hair a little while. See, it can feel like kind of a pointless thing, a little detail. I mean, who cares about a donkey? Jesus rode a donkey into town. Great. His feet were tired. But you see, the authors of Scripture are constantly inserting little details like that for real purposes. If I can stress one thing for you um, beyond the sort of main point of tonight, if I can stress something for you, orthodoxy is in the details. If you want to be faithful to the Bible, read the details, those little things that we just gloss over and don't think anything about, like donkeys. Those are important things. The authors of Scripture didn't just try and meet a word quota. They weren't like my students at Shawnee who were like, oh, I've got to get five pages, so I'm going to you know, either write a bunch of extra redundant words or I'm going to use 1,800-point font, right? Um, no, there, there's, a, there's a real reason that the authors are writing these things. There's a real reason that they're using all this information. And part of what's going on here is, again, Mark's connecting Jesus to the Messiah. He's saying for us, for his readers, Jesus is God's chosen anointed servant. In the Old Testament, we have a couple passages in the prophets. Um, we have like Zechariah 9.9. We have a passage in Genesis where we're told that the Messiah will come riding on a colt, come riding on a donkey. So Mark is making a real clear picture for us. This is who Jesus is identifying himself as. Even here, Jesus says, if somebody stops you and says, why are you taking that donkey? Which, again, seems like a rather natural thing to do. Um, If somebody stops you, tell them the Lord has need of it, and he'll return it. Even that that language there of Lord, what does that mean? The the Greek word's not super helpful. The Greek word, uh, Lord, could mean God. It could mean master. It could mean owner. Maybe it's just... Maybe Jesus bought a donkey somewhere, tied it up at some random person's house, and then said, go into town and get my donkey, right? Well, the word could mean a lot lot of things, but over and over again in Mark, we have a number of references where Jesus says, Lord, and what he means is, I am uh, one with authority. I am one with power. I am a king. That's what Mark's doing here. Again, Jesus is saying, I am the Lord. I can commandeer Someone else's donkey for my use. That was a, a, a prerogative of ancient kings. You know, it's like a police officer commandeering your vehicle or something like that, right? I don't know if they can still do that. But, but in, in ancient times, you could, you could take somebody's horse, right? If you were king and you needed a horse, that one's mine. I chose it. Jesus is establishing. He has real authority here. Again, Mark is saying to us, Jesus is the Messiah. But I want you to notice in the passage how much people miss who Jesus really is. We've already seen some people think of Jesus as this political hero, this this great figure who's going to give them everything that they really desire. 
Jesus is a means to their greatest happiness. They miss it. They don't understand who he really is. But more than that, there are people who simply don't even notice Jesus. So, in, this, uh, in the book of Mark, there's this repeated theme of spiritual blindness. Constantly, Mark's just pointing out how this person doesn't see Jesus, this person doesn't see Jesus. Even the disciples are constantly, they say the dumbest things in the book of Mark. This one of the reasons you know that Mark was not just somebody's you know, idea, but that it was inspired by God, is because Mark basically says, my friends are morons, right? I mean, if Mark's making an appeal for you to follow Jesus, he's doing a really lousy job of it because he keeps saying everybody who's already following him is kind of an idiot, right? He just keeps showing us over and over and over again. The disciples have no clue who they're talking to. They say the dumbest things. They constantly miss the point of Jesus' messages, of Jesus' miracles, of Jesus' power. They say one thing, and then they do the exact opposite. Jesus, you are the king, but we don't think you're that kind of king. So over and over again, we get that that theme, that picture presented to us. And even here, as Jesus is sort of coming in, and everybody reads this passage as some great triumphal entry, Jesus is recognized as this hero and king, the truth is, is it's not really. Verse 9. Verse 9 is the passage everybody looks at. Here we've got the crowd shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And we tend to think that that's a, a specific application to Jesus, that they're recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. The truth is, is this was a rather common thing for people to do as, as people made the trek, the pilgrimage, up to the temple at the time of this festival. It was a common theme of celebration to welcome your Jewish brothers and sisters in from, from the wilderness, in from these other cities, to the, the center of Jewish life, to welcome them in with this celebration. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed are those who are coming to the temple to worship the living God. Even here, it doesn't say blessed is the one who's coming in, in the, uh, or blessed is the, the one of the kingdom of our God. It's blessed is the one who's the kingdom of our father David. Right? There are all these, these loose ends that are just common, typical greetings for the festival at this time. They're not recognizing who this person is walking or riding on this donkey through this processional. They just, they're just greeting the general crowd. Welcome to Jerusalem. We're here to celebrate the God of the Israelite people. The very God whom they claim to celebrate is, is riding a donkey in the midst of them, and they don't know it. And we know they don't know it, because in just a week they kill him. I mean, if they really knew who this was, if they were really celebrating Jesus, right? They wouldn't murder him in seven days. But they don't know. We call this the triumphal entry. It's a great epic failure is what it is. It's God in our midst and we totally missed him. And see, here's the thing. That happens all the time. And even on Easter Sunday, even on Resurrection Sunday, we can completely miss Jesus. We can be like the people in the book of Mark. And we can think that Jesus is a means to my greatest happiness. He can give me all the stuff I want. He's the king of my kingdom. See, if I just, if I just follow Jesus, I'll get all these other little things that I really want. Jesus will give me happiness. Jesus will make my life work out. But see, that's not loving Jesus. This is loving ourselves and making Jesus a means to loving ourselves better. Do you see Jesus? See, some of us, some of us tend to think that the cross and the resurrection, they're really all about me. 
I mean, the, the cross is indeed absolutely a testimony to God's great love for us. But the center of that is God, not me. God didn't love me because I was so awesome. I mean, I am awesome, but God didn't love me because I was, right? God didn't love me because I was awesome and epic and great and I had all these great talents and skills and I was going to be so perfect for his kingdom. God, he didn't love me like that. I was useless, wretched, awful. I had walked away from God more times than, than I could possibly remember. See, so the center of the cross is God, who is merciful and great and gracious. The center of the cross is not me. God did not die for me because I was worthy. He died for me because he is merciful. Some of us think that Jesus rose from the dead to give us all that we really desire. To make my life better. To give me the ministry I want. To give me the relationship I want. To give me the job I want. To give me the, the, the status I want. The spouse I want. Jesus did not rise from the dead to give you a better earthly life. He didn't. In fact, most people who follow Jesus find out real quick it's a whole lot harder to have a happy life sometimes. It can be really frustrating to be a Christian. It can be really hard. Obeying Jesus is not easy. Following Jesus is not easy. So to think that Jesus rose from the dead just to give me a, a good, happy, comfortable life is to miss the entire point of the resurrection. It is not about me. Jesus is not the political hero of my little kingdom. He is a king of a different kind of kingdom. So many of us, I think, want the triumphal entry because we want the Jesus of the triumphal entry. We like to think of Jesus' victory in those terms, not in terms of surrender and sacrifice and murder because that's a different king to follow. right? Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you have to what? take up your cross and follow me daily. That's not a call to happy, easy, comfortable Christianity. That's not a call to your best life now. That's a call to die. That's a call to die to yourself and follow a king who was ready to die. See, the Jesus of the triumphal entry, that's somebody we could follow. But the, the Jesus of the cross, the Jesus of murder and death, the Jesus who walks into Jerusalem unnoticed, that's, that's a Jesus we like to distance ourselves from a little bit. Many of you know... Uh, know uh, our story. My wife and I moved here from Louisville uh, five years ago. Um, we came here to work with a, a particular pastor in a particular church, and six months in, um, things just fell apart. And that senior pastor resigned, and I was left with all my dreams and ambitions and plans uh, just crumbled to pieces. And we spent the next three years uh, just kind of throwing our arms up in the air, going, God, what are you doing? What do I do now? What would you have of me? And uh, I, I think I probably sent out well over 100 resumes to anybody who was possibly even thinking about looking to hire somebody. Um, I, I was so desperate to find work and to move forward with my plans and my dreams that I sent resumes to Canada. Canada? Who goes to Canada? Or the Netherlands. I sent resumes to the Netherlands. What's wrong with me? I don't speak Dutch. But I had to get to this place 
God was working in me and wrestling me and, and pressing me and humbling me to say, if you can't serve me, if you can't be faithful to me wherever I put you, doing whatever I, I call you to do, then maybe your faith in me isn't really all about me. See, I had to ask questions like, like is my faith really so shallow? Is my faith really all about what I want and what I want to do? Is Jesus my servant or am I his servant? Is Jesus working for my kingdom or am I working for his kingdom? And think, if, if you have this great goal and this great desire, which you should have great plans for your life, I'm not knocking that, but if God never decides to give you those things, can you still be faithful? If you never get to be part of that ministry, could you still follow Jesus? If you never... If you never get that job that you really want, can you still follow Jesus? If you, never get, if you never get married, if you never have children, if you never get the financial stability that you want, could you still follow Jesus? If Jesus says no to everything that you want, is he enough for you? So those are tough questions. We're so thankful for a revolution this, this church came into our life at, at just the right time, um, and, and God kind of transitioned us here. And, um, and I love this place tremendously. I've grown immensely from being part of this, this fellowship, and, and, and I think we would have stayed here for the rest of our lives if God had worked that out. We, we absolutely love revolution. And many, many of you know now that, um, you know, God has opened this door for us to, to go to somewhere else. But I, I know God would not have done that, would not have called us somewhere else if I was still just focused on what I wanted and what I wanted to do. I mean, who wants to go to Detroit? Right? That's, that's even worse than Canada, right? <laughs> who wants to do that? But, but God, God's called us to a place. And, and I, I never could have gone there if it hadn't been that God was working to humble me. So think, if God never gives you what you want, if he says no to your deepest desire, will you still say, I believe in Jesus, and I want to follow Jesus, and I love Jesus. And it's okay to be frustrated and, and, and to desire other things, but at the end, if you can't say, Jesus is what I really want, maybe you don't know the King Jesus that Mark knew. Mark is saying the triumphal entry is not what you think it is. The truth about Palm Sunday is that a lot of people misunderstood who Jesus was. And then maybe you're here and, and you just, you're like the crowds yelling Hosanna. Everybody's coming up to the temple. You, you, don't, you don't think about Jesus. I mean, maybe you celebrate Easter. You go to church. You know, some, some of you here, you'll, you'll sing loud and worship great when the songs play. But you don't think at all about what it means to follow Jesus when service is over. You don't think about that. It's not on your radar. You don't have a problem with Jesus. You just don't think about Jesus. At least not in the way that Mark thinks about Jesus. Not in the way that Mark is presenting. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he says, This is the good news of, this is the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, foretold by the prophets of old. This is the King. But he's a king of a different kind of kingdom. 
we have to humble ourselves and be willing to say, Jesus, you are king. And I will do your bidding, whatever that is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are king. And we want to, we want to live for you. We want to honor you. Um, but we recognize it is, it is incredibly difficult to do that. And it is far easier to ignore you, to push you to the back of our minds, to shape you into a king that we're more comfortable with, to domesticate Jesus. Lord, I pray on this day when we celebrate what you have accomplished, what you have truly won victory over, I pray that you would, you would have victory over our hearts tonight. That you would claim them as your own, that we would surrender to you, that we would live for you, we would die to ourselves, that we would claim you as king of a different kingdom, and we would follow you into that kingdom, I pray in Jesus' name, and amen.